Yeah, I think books are one of the most underutilized resources that we have available today. Hip hop is dead or rock and roll is dead. Is reading dead? And are you the one to give it life support? And there's no such thing as an overnight success. Like it all, there's always a bunch of struggle that happens before you become popular and get to tell your story. There's a Mark Twain quote on my bookmarks and it says, the man who does not read good books is no better than the man who can't. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Nick Davenport, a.k.a. Mr. Mental Muscle. Today, we have an episode of the Mental Muscle Podcast, and we have another Nick today, Nick Hutchison. He's the owner and founder of Book Thinkers, and he has a pretty interesting background. I'm excited to have him on because I see a lot of parallels. I was a, a book nerd growing up, and he has a company that's made for book lovers and anyone who just wants to get into reading. So I'll let him quickly introduce himself, and we can just get into this. Mr. Mental Muscle. Listen, man, I'm excited to be here. And uh, yeah, as far as introducing myself, so I'm the founder of a company called Book Thinkers that supports hundreds of authors of a year in the promotion of their books. I have a community of readers online that's about 150,000 on Instagram, and we make book recommendations every day. And I'm putting out my very first book. It launches November 1st. It's called Rise of the Reader, Strategies for Mastering Your Reading Habits and Applying What You Learn. I'm all about taking action and using the book's Behind me, if you're watching the video version of this, if you're, if you're just on audio, I've got like a thousand books behind me. I'm all about taking action on the books we read so that we can design our dream lives. And so, yeah, I, I know that we have a lot of similarities. We're sort of cut from the same cloth. So I'm excited to see what you want to talk about today. Well, let's jump right into it. So this is the first thing I'll say. You obviously have a company sent around reading books giving people formats so they can digest it. And that's, I think, a big part of it. And I used to be an educator before I got into the psychology stuff. So obviously in education, we see a decline of reading. So why, why do you personally think, or even from a, maybe you have a bigger explanation, why do you think reading is not as popular? Yeah, well, you know what? Growing up, I didn't think reading was cool. And I think part of that is because in the U.S. public education system, we're taught to read things that maybe we're not really interested in, and we're penalized if we don't read those things effectively. And so when I was growing up, I feel like I was just taught that reading was this thing in school, and you weren't always reading things you were interested in. So it was like this bizarre relationship that I had to reading. I was more of the athlete stereotype, a little bit less of the academic growing up. And on top of that, especially for kids nowadays, they're growing up with Instagram and TikTok and YouTube and these platforms, they're engineered to suck our attention and create short-term dopamine release, instant gratification. Every single time you scroll, right, variability increases dopamine and we're just hit with something new every three seconds. And so, yeah, nobody wants to sit down and read a boring book for a few hours, right? It's not as cool. It's not as energizing. It doesn't release as much dopamine. And I think, you know, part of that school relationship and part of the platforms that exist today for entertainment, you kind of mash those together. Those are probably some of the reasons why reading is on a decline, at least at a societal level. And that's perfect that you mentioned like dopamine, because, you know, I'm the mental guy and talk about brain performance and you're right, that variability, our, our brain loves to get that feedback. And if you're given this constantly uh, reiteration of this next new thing, this next trend, why would you want to sit down in a stationary position? Even like in a uh, content, right? We both are content uh, creators and you can't just have a, a content that just goes straight through. It has to be some maybe edits, some uh, music in the background, some uh, something off the wall. So it's kind of like setting us up for failure. So getting into... Book thinkers, how would someone who wants to utilize your services or resources, how would that go about? Yeah, so there's kind of two sides to this equation. So uh, most of our revenue comes from helping authors promote and market their books. And then this new book that I'm launching, as well as some of the other resources that, that will be made available with it, that's designed for the reader, right? So people who want to read these books and get more out of them, take better action. You know, I heard a great quote recently that said, action is the real measure of intelligence. And so it's not sitting back and debating the concepts that we read in these books that makes the difference. It's taking action on what we learn so that we can step-by-step step, improve our lives, make sure that we don't end up looking back on our life with regret, wishing we were a bolder version of ourselves. So that's why I love these personal development books. And by the way, when I say personal development, Sometimes people's eyes glaze over like self-help, but I'm talking about any book that can be read and used to improve your understanding of this world and that you can take action on. And so that definitely includes a lot of psychology. 
I mean, we're using our brains every single day in every area of our lives. And we might as well understand how our brains work so that we can be more efficient and allocate our attention and the time and resources to better places. Um, so this book that I'm putting out, Rise of the Reader, I'll tell you a little bit about why I decided to write it. As I was building this community of readers over time, making book recommendations, hundreds of people over the years reached out to me and said, hey, Nick, I appreciate all of the book recommendations, but I'm having a hard time turning that information into results. I'm inspired. I'm motivated. I have a better understanding of how things work, but how do I actually create real change in my life? And so I noticed that there was this big gap between accessibility and actually using that accessibility to take action on what we learn. And so at first I was kind of like, I don't know. I didn't know how to answer these people because I it was happening in my own life, but I never took the time to articulate what I was doing. I never took the time to actually observe my own behavior from like a third party perspective and look at how I was implementing these books. So I spent the last three years going through other resources on how to create effective change, but also observing my own behavior. And I came up with a bunch of frameworks that people can use. They're all detailed in the book, but I'm happy to share some today too. Um, frameworks that people can use to take information and turn it into action, like a little bit of alchemy almost. And um, yeah, I think books are one of the most underutilized resources that we have available today. There's a, I'll kind of finish off my little ramble here. There's a Mark Twain quote on my bookmarks. And it says, the man who does not read good books is no better than the man who can't. Mm. And so this skill set that all of us possess, we choose not to use it once we graduate high school or college or whatever the case is. And I think we should continue to use it as much as possible. And that's so true. You said a lot of great things. The first one I'll talk <laughs> on is the, uh, the intelligent person puts things into action. So that alone right there is saying a lot because we live in this fast-paced world where we're both entrepreneurs, business owners. So it's like, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur, be a boss, be my own boss, all that good stuff. But it's like, how do people actually go do it? And like going back to providing the resources to understand, because you say reading is cliche, reading is fundamental, right? But it's like, like you said, it's underutilized. You literally have thousands of books behind you. The average person probably hasn't even been in a library in the last decade. Anyone that's over age of 25, right? And anyone under the age of 25 may have never been in a library ever, you know? So you're bringing back, it's kind of like saying, you know, back when they say, oh, uh, hip hop is dead or rock and roll is dead. Is reading dead? And are you the one to give it life support? I'm trying, man. You know, I'm not the average book nerd, right? Like you picture somebody who's a little nerdy, uh, you know, with the glasses and everything <laughs> like that. And so I'm trying to create kind of this new fresh perspective to say that these books, they are the solution for almost every pain that you're experiencing and almost every skill that you want to develop. And so, I mean, how did I kind of get to this place? Like I mentioned, I was not much of the academic growing up. And so when I was going into my senior year of college, I had still never read a personal development book or anything outside of what I was forced to read in school. So I take this internship going into my senior year at a local software company. And my boss says something very interesting to me when I first started, because I had about an hour commute each way to this internship every day of the week. And he said something along the lines of, Nick, so I'm speaking to you as well. Nick, <laughs> listening to the same playlist for the 1,000th time on your way here, like, yeah, you enjoy the music, but that's not going to get you closer to where you want to be in life. But the right personal development or business podcast might. And so you might as well play into that world of potential. So I'm like, yeah, that's not cool, though. Like, I don't want to listen to these shows. But I decided to take his advice. And I started listening to business podcasts or podcasts actually on psychology as well. One of the first podcasts that I ever listened to was called The Science of Success with Matthew Bodner. And he talked all about how our brains work. And I thought it was fascinating. And as I started to listen to more shows, what I realized was that so many of the successful people being interviewed, they were giving at least some credit for their success to the books that they were reading. And so here I am like this cocky 21-year-old you know, you can't teach me anything. I know everything there is about business and life. And I'm constantly humbled on these podcasts because I'm learning something new almost every single episode. And so I decided to embrace that. I realized that if I was choosing not to read these books, I was choosing to live under my potential. So I just dove in. 
I started reading about every subject that I could, and I became obsessed with this material. And what I what I realize now is the books behind me, they condense decades, literally decades of somebody else's lived experience, how they overcame obstacles, their favorite life lessons. They condense decades of lived experience into days of reading. So it's like, yeah, you know, I kind of joke around, I'm 29 years old. But if you include all the books behind me, I'm thousands of years old because I've consumed all this valuable life information. And every single time I have a problem, I read a book about how to overcome it. Every single time I want to develop a skill set in my business or my personal life, I read a book about somebody else who's already done that and they teach me how to do it. And so it's like the coolest like cheat sheet or hack ever is this physical paper book that you can buy for $20 or less most of the time, and you can consume in just a couple of hours. So I know I keep, uh, I'm excited by this subject. So I keep like getting on these little rambles, but feel free to cut me off anytime. No, no, you're good. Trust me. I'm very observant and I, I'm generating points off of that. And I got one right now that I'll ask, are you familiar with the term cognitive flexibility? Oh yeah, definitely. So yeah. So I bring it up because when you mentioned like, okay, these are thousands of books, tens of years of or decades of life experience, tens of thousands of years of knowledge. And the fact that you have these resources in your brain and get to like the brain science a little bit, I always talk about cognitive flexibility is basically a fancy word for problem solving, being creative. And we get to the, the mental side of it, you only can really be creative or a problem solver when you can draw from a pool of different solutions. So let's say like, if you understand just being an auto mechanic, you're probably just going to be able to fix cars. But let's say you understand auto mechanic, but you read a book on uh, Wall Street, uh, um, stock exchange, whatever it is. And it, I'm getting kind of crazy with it, but let's say you figure out a way to find a solution or whether it's a business, a real life problem, because you understand these different aspects. And the fact that, like you said, a person who can read more and understand more books and have this wealth of knowledge, they're really just teaching themselves to have the, the resources. So when they do, if and when they do need it, it's there. So people can get caught up in, I guess, the, oh, it's just a book, uh, it's boring. I don't really care about this subject versus like, well, everything you you use day to day is information from a book or a person who lived it or did it and they put it in the book. So I think you're uh, making it cool in the sense, like you said, you weren't the the average person you would, you would picture when you see a, a avid book reader now, because it's like, I think that's the only way to buy people in, right? You have to relate to them. It's not saying you can't be the typical, I don't like using the word nerd to talk, sound like talking down, but it's like, if since you're not that, a person can say, oh, well, if he's doing it, why can't I? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I and I love the cognitive flexibility point that you're making. Is that what you called it? Cognitive flexibility? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I love that point. Like the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. When you have a growth mindset, you believe that your brain is malleable. It can change. It can learn new information and you can improve. And so when you read a diversity of perspectives on a specific subject, and then you can filter a decision through all of these perspectives and kind of create something unique. I think that's a beautiful thing. Like I, I've used this example sometimes, I just made it up one day, but let's say you're reading a book on intermittent fasting and you're reading a book on leadership. Well, what if you kind of combine both of them together and maybe you delegate once a week, like intermittent delegation. I don't know, like all of these fun, new creative novel things pop up when you start mashing these book subjects together or different perspectives on the same problem. Like when I think of one of my favorite books is Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. It's a detailed biography of Steve Jobs, one of the most famous innovators in business minds of today, right? Or of yesterday. Rest in peace, Steve. And no, I'm not having a conversation with Steve when I'm reading the book, but I understand how he makes decisions. And so when I'm faced with a problem in my life, it sounds kind of goofy, but I have this kind of mentor that I can filter my decision-making through and I can get Steve's perspective on a problem. No, it doesn't always happen. Like I visualize Steve in front of me, but I understand the mechanics of his decision-making. And because I've read his book and I've internalized the information and a bunch of additional resources, I have that accessible to me. So, you know, Steve Jobs isn't really a direct mentor of mine, but he kind of is in a way too. So that's how I like to think about it. I agree 100%. So going off of that, since he's considered one of the top businessmen in history, or at least modern history, what would you say in your route to becoming an entrepreneur, building this business? Let's talk about that, like really getting, not necessarily getting the idea, but the, 
the fortitude, the drive it takes to get to this point. Because I know personally, I've talked about on this podcast myself, but hearing other people's perspective, because like I said, everyone wants to be an entrepreneur and I don't deter people, but I just like to give them the full picture. So what was your experience from the start? Maybe it was just a vision to where you're at now. Yeah, my my story is a little unique and I'll, I'll try to be brief with this and, and give you some points on why I think it's this way. So I graduate college, I go full-time with that software company that I had first discovered books. And as I'm full-time with that company, I'm reviewing books, you know, slowly, steadily building this review business on the side. So I had a nine to five and then I had a five to nine after work essentially. And like I said, I wasn't passionate about books growing up. So I didn't have this like, you don't have to always have this prerequisite for starting a business. I think sometimes passion and purpose can be developed from consistency. It doesn't always have to come first. And so here I am, I'm working in the personal development space after work. I'm growing this business slow and steady, and I want to take the jump. I want to go full time in it. And I had a mentor tell me, Nick, don't jump off the cliff and try to build the parachute on the way down because you don't have this big emergency fund. Your business is not making money yet. Yes, it's exciting, but you'll start to operate from a place of scarcity and that scarcity will bleed into your decision-making. You'll compromise on values and your integrity and that scarcity mindset will bleed into calls with your customers. He said, Nick, 95% of small businesses fail in the first five years. So you don't want to be one of those people that runs out of money and has to give up on their dreams. So I kept my full-time job. And what was great about my full-time job was that it taught me skills. Like I was a salesperson. It taught me skills that directly transferred into what I was building on the side. So I decided to keep the full-time job and continue to build slowly and steadily. I experienced failure after failure after failure after failure. I spent so much money trying to make this thing become successful and it didn't. And so I'm happy that I kept that full-time job because it supported my side hustle, my passion, my playground, my entrepreneurial playground. And I even kept that full-time job past the point that I hired my first couple of employees. That's where this gets a little bit different because I wanted to minimize risk. I wanted to build up an emergency fund and a business that was cash flowing and had employees successfully working in it before I took the jump and went full-time. So I always had a little bit of insecurity around that, like while it was happening, before making the jump, because people would call me an entrepreneur. And I'm like, I don't know if I am. I still have a full-time job. you know. And here we are a couple of years later, and, and I realize it's silly to think that in hindsight. Who cares what the term actually means? But the kind of roundabout point here was that I wanted to minimize risk. So I decided to work a full-time job while building my passion, my side hustle. That side hustle solved a problem for a very specific type of person, a nonfiction author who wanted to promote and market their books. I tried a thousand different things. Most of the time I was unpaid. I eventually, after years of failure, found something that worked. And then instead of trying to look for something new and flashy, I doubled down on what was working and I've built a business out of it. Like I mentioned before, we have 10 people on my team now. We serve hundreds of authors a year, and I love everything about it. And so that's kind of my story for why I started the business and how it was built. Uh, years of hard work, a lot of failure, and uh, risk minimization. See, that's good you said all that because that's the side, like I said, when I talk about it, I'm the same way. I give the the good and the bad, the ups and the downs, because most people want to just jump full force into it. And I get why, because you love it. But you said something that you already mentioned before, but the fact that you weren't necessarily a diehard book reader and all this stuff because a lot of people get caught up in, I got to love it. And I, I think it was yeah. Mark Cuban. He made a, a talk. He said that he was just more concerned about being efficient at it. And does it bring in the money it needs to bring in, build that business. And you'd probably be more successful because when you're married to the work, it's kind of like an artist, right? It, it's like, if, if it doesn't do well, you get down, you get depressed versus someone who's like, eh, I obviously want to be successful, but if it didn't happen day one, I'm not going to be as emotionally tied to it. And I think what you said is good because one, you taught them to still have that backup plan because people say, oh, if you really believe you shouldn't have a backup plan. I'm like, that's not very logical. You should always have a backup plan. Even myself, I'm a risk taker, but I still taught. I was an adjunct professor. I still taught why I built up my body one. And it's like what you just said, a lot of people will never tell because it doesn't sound sexy on a, a clip which I'll probably clip that, but um, it doesn't sound <laughs> as sexy as, oh, I'm on a laptop in Barbados doing million dollar deals. 
if you are doing that, shouts out to you, cool. But is that really everyone's story? 95%, that means only 5% are profitable, profitable, which doesn't even mean lucrative, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, you're right. And and the 95% that end up failing, they're not the ones in Barbados posting on their stories, <laughs> like a million bucks today in sales. And so those are the people that, you know, it, it, you're right. Only the people that are super successful, like it's a very small percentage. Those are the ones that get most of the attention. And so I think it is important to sort of take the superhero cape off for a minute pretend like you're not a superhero and tell everybody how it really was. And there's no such thing as an overnight success. Like it all, there's always a bunch of struggle that happens before you become popular and get to tell your story. And so, yeah, it's also one of my favorite things to do is just kind of like, yeah, let's be real about it and let's set realistic expectations. I mean, I, I was fortunate that I was able to kind of persevere through and receive that guidance, not to make that jump too fast. But unfortunately, most people don't get to hear that. And so hopefully somebody today uh, that resonates with them and, and gives them a little bit of a different perspective. Definitely. So let's segue into this. I definitely wanted to ask this. So first question is, is uh, the books, are you pushing, is it primarily reading books or audio or both? So let's say, I, let's say right now, because again, it's my full-time job. So this number is going to sound crazy, but let's say I consume a hundred books a year. For me, I read about, 70 physical paper books, and I probably listen to 30 books. I'm not really much of a Kindle guy. So I love Audible, but I, I think that a physical paper book, for me, that's sort of the holy grail. I can get a lot more out of it and implement more effectively. What about you? Actually, so I'm the, not the opposite. I like physical better, first and foremost, but I'll be admit that I probably have hundreds of books as well, but they're, I would say 80% are Kindle. I don't really like Audible yeah. too much. I maybe have 10% Audible. But the reason why Audible I don't personally like is because I'm on the go a lot. And even though it makes sense, like, whoa, that's probably the best time. It's like, I really want to focus. And what the tangible books do, whether it's Kindle or paperback, is that I can sit there and I actually have to make sure my eyes are scanning. And this is when we get into the cognitive side again. Like, I'm actually encoding what I'm reading. Because Audibles or audio books take a different uh, mental processing. Obviously, they both have to be encoded, but when you're reading it, you have more attentional focus and you really have to digest it and comprehend it versus audio. You could have other cues distracting you, visual cues distracting you. So I personally, I like uh, physical, but I do do Kindles as well. Yeah, that that same mentor that gave me that advice to to wait, you know, not build the parachute on the way down, but build it and then jump. Uh, I still meet with him on a regular basis. He's a great mentor and <laughs> he laughs at physical paper books. He's like, dude, that's like having a map in your car instead of using a GPS. He's like, a Kindle has all this additional functionality that makes it so much more useful. But for me, I, I love the the feeling of the paper, the smell of the books. It sounds kind of goofy. I love writing physically in the books. And you could do a lot of those same things with a Kindle device. But um, yeah, I, I agree. Like learning visually instead of like from an auditory perspective, I think you can retain the information more effectively. And listen, if you could do both at the same time, that's a fun little hack. It's multi-sensory. You learn from a visual perspective and an auditory perspective at the same time. So if you've never tried that, it's it's fun to listen to a book while you're reading it at the same time. I've done it once or twice before, but getting back into the, the brain science, uh, I don't know if you know, 80% uh, of the brain's sensory is wired for visual. So yes. it's, even that alone is preceding the fact that reading a tangible book is more efficient than, and I have nothing against, because I know a lot of people are the opposite. They're so on the go. They think, okay, an hour drive, I can knock out like five chapters right into work. But it's like, from a brain science standpoint alone, it is better to have a tangible book. Yeah, I agree 1000%. And one of my favorite tips for getting more from the books you're reading, I think you're going to love this. Um, is to set an intention for each book that you read that follows the SMART goal framework. So here's the reason that I started to develop this. I'd bump into people at a conference or on social media or wherever, and I'd ask them, hey, what are you reading? And they'd tell me, and I'd say, why? And they'd say, well, what do you mean, why? And I'm like, well, why are you reading the book you're reading? And so when I set a goal for each book, it follows that SMART goal framework, specific, measurable, attainable, so like realistic and actionable. Uh, relevant to my life or my business. So there's an emotional connection to why I'm reading the book and time bound. I love to give myself 
sort of like a, a deadline to, to finish and implement the book. So instead of just reading, let's say, a book on communication, aimlessly looking for something that might improve my life, I'm going to use that format. And the goal might look like this. Find and implement at least two strategies for improving my communication by the end of the month because I know that by effectively you know, by improving my communication skills, I have a better chance of succeeding in life and blah, 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 like make it a little bit more emotional. And so now I'm going to rewrite that intention on the inside cover of the book or on a sticky note and put it on the back of my Kindle device. And so I'm going to reread that intention each and every time I read a few more pages so that the RAS, the reticular activating system in my brain can filter for those two things to find and implement within the book. So now I'm not reading the entire book, trying to consume and retain everything. I'm just trying to consume and retain the information that's most relevant to the action I'm looking to take. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's, it's helpful for taking better action and retaining more because you're not trying to retain the whole thing. You're being very specific about it. Does it make sense? No, that makes for me. I definitely make sense because I just did a workshop with one of my corporate contracts on Monday on smart or goals in particular. And we talked about smart goals. And then you mentioned the RAS. And I talk about that a lot on this channel because like you said, it gives that intent to what the brain needs to look for. And the brain only knows what it's looking for. And the biggest mistake in general, not even just with reading people make is they have no intent. So if there's no intent, the brain could walk right by it and not even know. And it seems mystical, but it's literally how your brain functions. Yeah, I heard an example on social media the other day that was great. And um, we've all heard the yellow car example with the Raz, but I, I like this example. They said, um, you know, the last time you jumped in the car for an hour, how many red cars did you see? And you're like, I don't know. I mean, I could take a guess, but like, how many red cars do you remember seeing? And it's zero. I, I know I saw some, but I don't remember any of them in particular. Well, what if before you left on whatever that one hour drive was, you knew that for every red car you saw, you'd earn $100. Do you think that would change the outcome? Do you think if you knew you were looking for opportunity that you would have located those red cars and seen them a little bit more efficiently? Yes. And so I think the same thing happens with these books. If you just read aimlessly, there were, there were opportunities to improve your life, but you missed them because you weren't looking for them with intention. But if you knew that you were to be compensated for each opportunity, you improve your communication in that book, you would have located a few more than you would have if you didn't have that intention in the first place. Well, most definitely. I like I like that analogy. That was a good one because that intent, that motivation even, because that's another part of it. Why, why am I doing this? And the $100, let's be real, most people, that they would take that offer. So yeah, mo most definitely. So I want to yeah. go into another point. So you mentioned like these books are, self-development, self-help type stuff. And I know that can mean a lot of different things. So on the other side of that, do you think there's a, not a danger? I don't know how to word it, like a misconception because there's a lot of people who might say they're self-help gurus. Because I had an author on a few months ago, she wrote a book, her name's Amy Morin, and it's called The 13 Things Mentally uh, Strong People Don't Do. And she has a whole series around that 13 things concept. And we talked about that and I asked her this question and she's on the more psychology side of it. She gave a pretty interesting answer, but I'm curious to ask you, what is your thoughts on it? Like the, the guru, the person, because obviously if you write a book to some degree, you're the expert on this, whether it's you lived it, you went to school for it, you were a corporate, whatever that walk of life, you're the expert. Is there a fine line between the expert and the guru where it gets like, okay, just listen to me because I wrote these books. Is there something you see out of that that you might criticize or maybe you agree with? I don't know. Yes. Uh, I mean, listen, when I first got into this space, I, I heard every criticism that you possibly could from friends and family, people who said, listen, it's just full of snake oil salespeople. None of these books are legitimate. They're not going to change your life. Um, and here I am on the other side of about 500 books, literally living in the present moment, my dream life. I'm happy, I'm healthy, and I'm wealthy as a result of these books. That's my personal experience. And I give all of the credit for the success that I've had in the life and the business that I have to the books that I've read. I did do a good job at filtering out a lot of the nonsense. And so I think that's part of the equation. I don't think we could ignore it. Not every author in the world of self-help or personal development has the best intentions. And so it's important to understand who you are reading. Has this person actually achieved some level of success? Like, 
kind of like that saying, you know, never trust a skinny chef. I think never trust somebody who only makes money selling a book about real estate, right? If they don't have any real estate, you shouldn't be trusting the book that they're writing on real estate. And that applies to every area of life. Like you don't have to be a perfect author, but if you've written a book on happiness and you're upset and you've never studied the subject, you know, the reader shouldn't read it. So do a little bit of that due diligence. I will say though, I, in my own personal opinion, I do think that because we live in such a data-focused, science-driven world, sometimes we discount personal experience. And so, for example, like I went to school and I have a marketing degree, a business degree. I don't have a degree in neuroscience, which would probably align better with the subject of the book that I've written, which is how to retain and implement more from the books you're reading. But I do have a lot of personal experience having read and implemented hundreds of books to design the life that I live today. And I know it works. And I have testimonials from people in my community saying that these strategies have changed their life. And so I don't ever want to say that I'm a guru or anything like that. But I have gone through that personal experience. And for me, that personal experience does lend enough credibility to have the conversation and share my story. And I don't think I should be discounted just because I don't have a degree in let's just say neuroscience or something like that. So that make sense? No, I agree with that because since I do have degrees in psychology and all this stuff, I agree with that more so probably than some of my uh, colleagues would because they're, it's not a shot to that industry, but they are like that. Like you said, they're data-driven. And I think it does a disservice because since I do have the degrees, but I also use a lot of, uh, I'm about to be 35 next uh, November, right before your, or right after your book drops, actually, my birthday is November 3rd. But in my 35 years, I can say that my degrees definitely taught me the framework on how to work with, I've professional athletes. I've I've worked with law enforcement, military consulting with mental performance, neuro stuff. But I could argue the, the bread and butter that really gets me in the door with them is not the fact that I have those degrees. It's the fact that I can speak on things. And like I say, I'm only about, 30, about to be 35. I've stepped in rooms where everyone in there was over 50 and wowed them with my life experience because I've experienced things that my degree had nothing to do with. But I can say, hey, one of my clients was X, Y, and Z, and we did this. And they said, oh, really? We could use that here. So I agree with you 100%. The, the, the book stuff, ironically, is good. You need that. But the experience you can bring, because you can learn with books how to do the stuff in neuro that makes sense without having to get a, a PhD. You can definitely learn yes. all the basics. Because I have a course that I sell on my site that people from everyday people to PhDs take it, and they get the same outcome. So you can learn that stuff. But your experience and how you know how to approach people who need to learn how to compartmentalize what they retain and read and strategies. I think that does way more. That's my opinion. I might be biased because your name's Nick too, but I think that way goes <laughs> a lot better. And, I, I'm, and I'm a former educator, so I can agree that goes a lot further than just having the credentials and the, the, the science. Yes. Yeah. And, and I love the science too. I'm, I'm always in this kind of, I think at this point in my life, I'm in like a trust but verify mode because I do think that most authors, most people creating content have good intentions. They Their purpose comes from their pain. They've overcome something and they want to help other people overcome that as well, most of the time. But there, you do have to be careful. I, I interviewed this guy on my podcast. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, Robert Greene. He wrote The 48 Laws of Power and some other that. books. Mm -hmm. And, and what's so interesting about his book is that he's he didn't write it so that you could leverage these laws of power and take advantage of the world. He wrote it so that you could be aware of some of the other power games that are happening around you so that you don't get taken advantage of. So it doesn't have to be an offensive book. It could be a defensive book. And so there are a lot of these games being played. And I think by personal development gurus and stuff like that, and you you should train yourself to become aware of them so that you don't get fooled. You should make sure that a book doesn't set unrealistic expectations like, hey, Nick, you're going to make a million dollars in the next week if you read my book. Don't read that book, right? But if the book says, hey, we're going to set up the frameworks for you to start a side hustle, it's going to be slow and steady and it might take years to take off, but entrepreneurship can lead to freedom. And so we're going to, we're going to take a logical kind of foundational approach. That's a more realistic book, right? Like read that one. Don't read the one that says you're going to make a million bucks next week. 
So yeah, trust, but verify. Most people are out here doing great things. You don't have to rely strictly on data and science. I think personal experience can be valuable, but make sure the person talking to you through the book is who they say they are and they've helped people you know, achieve some success. I've, I'll finish that thought off with an idea on mentorship because I think a lot of these books, they are my best mentors. You know, a mentor is somebody who's done what you want to do in life and they've also helped other people get there successfully. And a lot of people miss that other that other point. Like just because somebody has made their millions or they're super healthy or they're super happy doesn't mean they're a great teacher. And it doesn't mean their book is valuable. But if other people go through that experience, they rate and review the book well on Amazon, their social media audience is full of amazing testimonials, then you can rely on that experience and trust it a little bit more. Trust, but verify. Yeah, you just made me think of something. Are you familiar with the um, curse of knowledge bias? I'm not sure. So you basically just said it. So you said all because they're the healthiest, best body, most money, doesn't mean they can teach it. So the curse of knowledge is a cognitive bias where we assume because someone has the skill set and competency in their sport field, whatever, that it transfers automatically to teaching it because the the the, the um, research actually shows, so I'm using science, it shows that the best coaches, like this has been measured through like winning records, CEOs, things of that nature, are actually the ones who are not bad, obviously you have to be good, but like mediocre to low tier high. So this is because the skill set needed to be good at something takes more focus and objective like approach. And someone who's considered the best, even though they do work hard, a lot of times they're more enamored with just the fact that they're good at it. So their coaching might look like, hey, just do it because that's what I did. Versus a person who was like B, C tier, they'll be like, well, I'm good at something, but I had to really study film or I really had to read books or read plays or whatever it is. So if you look at literal, like uh, they use a lot of uh, NBA coaches, and there's one, um, I'm from South Florida, so the Miami Heat, he's a perfect example. His name's Eric Spolstra, and he was their assistant uh, video coordinator, so he just got all the film from other teams to get studied, and then he became like a, an assistant coach, then he became the head coach. He's won, I think, four championships and been to at least seven or eight in the last decade or so, and he was a college player, but he played like a Division two school. So with all that mediocre player not really high level and performing, but yet he's led the championships versus someone like, like say Michael Jordan. He's never been a coach because he has that mentality of just do it like Nike. Right. So that's the curse of knowledge. And you made a perfect point with that because the person who has the real estate book that sold a million dollars is like, well, does that mean he can actually sell? Or if he did sell a million dollars, can he show you how to do it? That's the biggest barrier, you know? So there's a lot of good stuff. And uh, maybe yeah, I love home. that. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I love that cognitive bias. And I'm I'm born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts. So Bill Belichick is a good example of that for the New England Patriots, right? I mean, Bill does not look like your average football player. And, uh, you know, but he has the mind for it. So, yeah, just another good example. And I wanted to go one more thing when you mentioned Robert Green. I loved how you said um, read it defensively because I actually made a YouTube video a few months ago and it was called How to Be a Narcissist. And I, I kind of pivoted or proposed the question at the beginning of the video of, I'm a teacher, how to be a narcissist. And I, I stopped and was like, wait, you're probably thinking, why would I do that? But like you said, the seven things were, if you know them, how to do them, reverse engineer it, I can pick, pinpoint when someone's doing it to me. And that's, so you're doing a good thing. So your book, uh, I guess, even though I haven't read it yet, I definitely will be getting it. There's an unofficial plug from what I can tell will be in it. This is some good stuff. And this is coming from a, a brain and behavior scientist. So. I don't know if that means much, but <laughs> a lot of things you're bringing up, I know from a science level, they have a lot of re relevance and correlation. Yeah, well, that that means a lot. And like I said, I, I also rely heavily on the science and the data, and I love reading uh, books on cognitive science and behavior and things like that, too. Um, a lot of psychology. Um, but, I, you know, I just think that in today's world, we do sometimes discount personal experience. And yeah, that Robert Greene metaphor is a good one. and. Uh, Oh, I had one other thought on that, but I just lost it. Let's see if I can dig it back up. So the more you think about uh, it, the further it goes away. That's called the typical tongue theory. <laughs> so the more you think about it, your brain pushes it further back. So let's just go. And then I guess it'll be like, oh, yeah, then we'll, I guarantee it'll come back. So off there. So 
obviously you serve the author. So from your personal life, whether it's from high school to even now, I would say, what are three authors, not necessarily favorite, but three authors that their books, it could be a big time author like Robert Greene, or it could be someone I've never ever, and I looked up your site that you do give a lot of attention to smaller authors because it doesn't mean their information is any less valuable, right? So three authors that big or small that you can say their books really left an impact, whether it was just how you felt, what it did to help improve your life or business or all the above. Sure. My my favorite author of all time, still today, his name is Tim Ferriss. Are you familiar with Tim? I've heard of him. I'm not familiar with his works extensively, but I've heard of him. So he's written a number of books. My favorite is called The 4-Hour Workweek. And oh, yeah. it's essentially a book on lifestyle design, but also running a remote business. And so I say that he's one of my favorite authors because he's also a biohacker. He experiments with his body. Um, he's a very successful business person and investor, and he hosts a podcast and he's very inquisitive and curious, and he hosts a lot of science-based people too. So really interesting conversations. But um, when I read Tim's book, Tim said something in the beginning of that book that I thought was really interesting. He basically said that reality is negotiable, that yes, society does have this box and it tries to shove you inside of the box, Right standard nine to five, go to job, you know, go get a job at a big company, take on a ton of debt, maybe retire at 65 if you're lucky and then start living your life. And he said, you don't have to live life that way. You can design something that's uniquely fulfilling to you. And then he gives you the roadmap on how to build a business that serves your unique needs. And so I followed that book to the T and I designed this business that I have today as a result of his book. And so Tim is a great guy. Uh, he just wants to be useful and helpful. And my favorite thing about him is that 99% of the people that walk past him have no idea who he is. But if you do recognize Tim out in public, it's probably because he's had an amazing impact on your life. So he's a lot more famous to the people that he's helped than he is to the general public. And I think that's a really cool and desirable lifestyle. So I'll name Tim Ferriss. Uh, one more business book. I read a book last year called $100 Million Offers by Alex Hormozzi. And Alex Hormozzi is a very successful business person, but he writes at a third to fifth grade reading level. So he takes these really complex business subjects and he dumbs them down so that anybody can read and apply the information. And I'll just say it. I spent $20 on his book and a few hours reading it. It led to some ideas that I implemented in my business that within six months generated an additional six figures of revenue. For a small business, that's a very meaningful number. No, so when is. we talk about the ROI from these books, a $20 book led to over $100,000 of additional revenue in just a period of a few months. And I I mean, I owe a lot to that book. So uh, that's, a, that's a big one for me. And the third book I'll mention is different. Um, it's about life in general, kind of philosophy, you know, the universe and, and the plan that it might have for us. Uh, and that's The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. I really love that book. It's a parable. You know, it's fiction. It's a story. But it teaches you about life. And I think that because we've had the majority of our conversation around nonfiction style books, I just wanted to mention something that was fiction. And maybe you could back me up with how the neuroscience or psychology works here. But the underlying idea of this book is that if you state your intentions to the universe, the universe will conspire to assist you. And I think it probably has to do with that RAS function, mm -hmm. like filtering for opportunities. But I try to I try to use affirmations. I try to state my intentions to the world. I try to be optimistic and look for opportunity. And uh, that book is a great reminder of what that journey might look like for one of us. No, that's a great example. So going back to the RAS, your brain reverts to its least level performance when you get into a dynamic or fight or flight or stressful situation and the beauty of stress is always there it's just it just fluctuates right so going to your point of like the affirmations that's something in uh sports psychology they, they talk a lot about self-talk performance psychology and those get you primed just like with a physical skill like if you lift the weights enough that curl motion that press or squat motion becomes second nature and it gets easier before you even get physically stronger, those motor those motor neurons fire and they get more easier and easier to fire. So going back to the affirmations is what it's really doing is priming your brain to be able to readily revert. When it does revert, those are there for it. Versus if you don't practice it, 
because like I say, it seems it's kind of mystical, but there's a lot of science that backs it up because now when it reverts to that lesser state, you already primed it what to do. And it's like, oh, we've been here before. And now those motor neurons or those neurons in this case are able to do what they need to do and fire. So yes, there's a lot to that. Yeah, man, I love that. I I have a good example of how that's worked in my life too. So I read very early on about the power of gratitude, about recreating a path, you know, your default pathway in a stress in a stressful situation or a feeling of lack to gratitude instead. And so I would journal about three things I was grateful for every single day. I had a gratitude notebook. I would be very intentional about it. And then eventually, because I knew I would have to write three things the next morning that I was grateful for, throughout the day, I would start to notice those opportunities. I'd start to highlight them in real life and be like, oh, I'm really grateful that that just happened. I'll write about that tomorrow morning. And it had such a profound impact on my life. I went from a feeling of lack to a feeling of abundance. And I got the numbers one, two, and three tattooed on my wrist so that even subconsciously, I'm looking for opportunities to fill those numbers in all day long, every day. So now when, let's just say a Lamborghini flies by me on the highway, I default to a feeling of, I'm so happy that I have a car in the first place and some people don't, instead of, man, I wish I had that Lamborghini. And that was through repetition, right? Repetition leads to retention and it strengthens those neural connections and it defaults our pathway to what we're engineering. And uh, yeah, gratitude's changed everything for me. And I'm just, I'm constantly comparing myself to where I was in the past and looking at how much I've grown or comparing myself, it sounds a little bit dark, but to people that uh, are in a less fortunate situation, because it just reminds me that the situation I have is amazing. It's beautiful. I should be grateful for it. I should thank God for it every single day. And yeah, so that's, it, it's a little bit about what you were talking about. So I wanted to mention that. Uh, no, that was perfect. And it's funny because even though you're not necessarily in my field, when I do a lot of mental skills training and coaching, it's like a lot of what we've talked about falls in, and this has been a great podcast because that's really why I like this. It can branch to other uh, demographics, but the main core of this podcast is to teach people skills to take with them to utilize in everyday life. So with that being said, I do something at the end of every podcast, even though we've given a wealth of knowledge, you've given a wealth of knowledge. I call it the, the take home too. So two things, it could be a literal sentence, could be a quick aside, but two things so they can take home. And the goal is once you uh, say each one, they turn off this podcast, we sign out, they turn off the podcast and they'll be like, you know what? Let me go do this. So something to take home, to take home too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. The following math is mind blowing. If you schedule 15 minutes of reading in your morning and 15 minutes of reading in your evening, so that's 30 minutes a day for a beginning style reader, that's about 20 pages. Since most of these books are only about 200 pages nowadays, that means that you could read 100 pages a week, a book every two weeks. So what I like to say is replace 15 minutes of your social media in the morning and 15 minutes of your Netflix or HBO or whatever you're watching in the evening, not the whole thing, just 15 minutes and watch your life transform over the next 12 months. So schedule that time into your calendar, set reminders in your phone, read for 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening. And if you follow that math, you'll read 26 books over the course of the next 12 months. That means you can solve 26 problems or you can develop 26 different skill sets simply by replacing something that is almost meaningless, a little bit of Netflix, a little bit of social media with something that serves your future self. And it can happen in just 15 minutes twice a day. So that's number one. That's a good one. I, I'm, I'm going to use that one. I already do it to an extent, but I'm going to add another 15 minutes. <laughs> All right. And here's another one. We were just talking about gratitude. This is a tip that I put in my book, and I think it's a little unique. I don't know if I made it up, but I haven't heard anybody tell me where it's from yet. So I record a gratitude time capsule on every Sunday. So I pull out my phone in selfie mode and I record a one minute video, max one minute, just highlighting the best things that happened over the last seven days, expressing love, gratitude, you know, and highlighting the things that happened. Those might be people, those might be related to my business, my relationship, my health, whatever it is. And then I upload that one minute video to a Google Drive and I have them separated by year. So the idea is that in the future, I can condense an entire year's worth of one minute videos into 52 minutes. And I can watch an entire year's worth of gratitude and highlights and joy and reinforce those feelings in less than an hour. 
And so maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, I can click back to a random video in a random week and watch myself light up and talk about something that maybe never even came to fruition or ended up being totally meaningless, but it brought me joy in that moment. And uh, it's one of my favorite activities to do. And if I'm ever feeling down, even today, like I'll just click back into a random video folder, a random week, and I'll watch those highlights and I'll feel like a million bucks. So that's one of the uh, the things that I recommend doing in my book. And it's just, it's documenting life so that you have the experience of reliving it in the future. Wow. That's another good one. These are great. And I'm definitely going to use them and I, I might even use them with some of my clients. So this is definitely good stuff. So I guess with that being said, you know, the cliche, uh, plug your stuff. You already got the book. So tell them more where to find that, when to find it and your socials and all that good stuff. Yeah, man, my favorite thing to do is play this book matchmaker role. So if anybody in your audience today wants a custom book recommendation from me, then reach out to me at bookthinkers on Instagram. It's spelled just like it sounds. You can link it in the show notes mm -hmm. and uh, tell me about a problem that you're facing. Tell me about a skill you want to develop or something else. And I'll provide a book recommendation to you. I may have to go back and forth, ask some follow-up questions, get some additional context, but I always answer the DMs. And uh, it's my favorite thing to even follow up with people three months later, six months later, ask about the book, what kind of impact it's had. So if anybody's like, you know what, Nick, Nick Hutchison convinced me and Nick Davenport convinced me that these books are valuable and I want to read one, but you're not sure where to start. Hit me up. The other thing is, uh, you know, the links in, in the Instagram bio, you can find links to our website. If you're an author and you want to learn more about our services, you can find a, a link to order a copy of the book. And uh, also happy upcoming birthday. November 3rd is right around the corner, man. So happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll get that book as a, a present to myself. <laughs> Love it. All right. So thanks for uh, everything. This was a very good convo and it brought a different perspective of something that seems so straightforward books like the title is going to be like, huh, what books, but they're going to be surprised on all we elaborate on. So thanks for coming through and your team for reaching out. And we may have to do this again once the book is released. Yeah, man, I'd love to. I feel like we are cut from the same cloth. We, like I mentioned at the beginning, we view the world in a similar way and and uh, I learned some things from you today as a guest on the show. So I bet a lot of people say that, but but that's some extra value. Nice. Thank you so much. So, hey, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Make sure you get Nick's book when it comes out November 1st. And as always, get your mind right.